Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 9th, 2022. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. And it is time for an expert counsel question and answer show of the week. I got a pretty good lineup of expert counsel members for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we have the U.S. government is a bully at home and abroad, Dr. Paul himself. Chris Rossini will be talking about how the U.S. military is not supposed to be used for maintaining an empire and how the now obvious control agenda that the government has is fundamentally flawed. Sean Mills will talk about doing your own solar installation Uh, but getting uh, a professional to ser- sign off on it and still qualify for uh, the federal tax credits that are available for solar installation. Doc Bones will talk about dealing with first and second degree burns. Nick Ferguson will talk about fodder systems, as he often does, but in this case specifically for feeding rabbits, which I think is one of the most underutilized things that small homesteaders could be doing right now. Is, is a combination of basically your yard is a meadow with a bag mower and you got fodder trees and you got rabbits and you got meat security forever. So Nick's going to talk about that. John Pugliano's got a lightning round of finance and economic questions. Tim, a tool man cook. We'll give you the good, the bad, and the ugly of ethanol gas and small engines. And I have a really hard question, but it's going to be a very short answer. And that is, it's about staying keto in a relationship with the other partner not doing it. But it's, it's, it's much more complex question. Because the question is, I'm doing this. It's working. My life is getting better. My wife makes pastas and cakes. And it's not that the guy's tempted by them. That could be a problem too. But in this case, she'll make something like that. She wants him to eat it. And then her feelings are hurt when he doesn't. And how to deal with that. It's That's a tough one. I almost didn't do it. I thought, well, tough questions are what you're supposed to do. So I'm going to do that one. But I'm also going to, uh, that, that's going to be pretty quick. Because I can only say so much with that. And I'm going to blend it into transformation. People transforming themselves. Because that's what this show is largely about. And I'm going to tie that into a quote of the day from one of my favorite authors of all time, Richard Bach. This quote is from Illusions, Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah. that was written in the early 70s. And it's from, within that book, a book known as the Messiah's Handbook. And the quote is, Argue for your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. We'll even invoke a little Nicole Sauce into that one, because she's been getting a little saucy lately, right? Anyway, let's, uh, let's dive on straight into that and... Uh, Let's lead off with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. Right now, the, the, uh, the situation is where people aren't wanting to go into the military. There are some shortcomings. The, um, 
military people, the people who are the uh, individuals wanting for us to pursue military adventurism around the world, oh, this is this is really scary stuff. Some of us might think, well, maybe that'll teach us to tighten our belt and wise up with our foreign policy. Why should we plan and antagonize China at the same time we plan and antagonize Russia? But uh, but the whole thing is is uh, uh, what would be a good benefit from this is maybe it would draw attention to our foreign policy. How many people do we need? They always come up with a figure right now looking for umpteen thousand more people and that we are coming up short. It's going to be a bad year. Well, what uh, what would be so bad about bringing some troops home? Makes no sense. The other accusation that people make toward those of us who talk in this matter is that, oh, you're a bunch of isolationists. You don't want to live in the real world. You just want to, uh, you know, be isolated by yourself. And it's exactly the opposite. That's what trade is. It does the opposite. It brings people together. I'd much rather use uh, a term of non-intervention. Uh, not isolation. Non-intervention means we're not going to interfere in your neighbor. If you have good neighbors, you don't find out, well, first, what's your religion? What do you do? What is your sports? And, and agree on everything. No. The, the neighbor moves in, and it's generally accepted. This is one place that works pretty well. It's generally accepted that your house is your castle, and you, what you do in your house is your business, and we're not going to intervene in what you're doing. But the tragedy is, is the individuals don't do it. But the government does. Some people who like intervention, oh, I can't say that, I can't do that, I don't have the cause. Let's give the power to the government to do that intervention. But I don't want the government doing anything that you can't do as an individual. Right, Dr. Paul. There is a legitimate purpose for the military. And, you know, we and Dr. Paul and the Ron Paul Institute are very critical of the military-industrial complex and the policies, but not the military per se, not the troops that go in. That's why the troops loved Dr. Paul's presidential campaign, because the purpose of the military is to protect your country. It is not to go around the world and try to police the world any more than I can go down my street to each and every house and go and try to solve everybody's problems. It's impossible. I would fail miserably. Our country, our government, has failed miserably trying to go and police the world. Nor is it the purpose of the military to go and force other countries to be like you any more than me going down the street to each house and try to make them just like me. You're going to fail miserably if you try that. Our country has failed miserably trying to make uh, the Middle East or any other country uh, in Africa, anywhere else, just like us. You can't do it. So it's the policy that's the problem. The purpose of the military is if you have a country that is uh, built around the ideas of liberty, you need to protect that because we live in a world with human beings that have the freedom to choose whatever ideas and philosophies they want. And there's going to be others that are not going to like our philosophy, and they may want to try to hurt us. That's what the military is there to do, to protect us, our country here. Uh, we are so far away from that. We're an empire with uh, troops in a 100-plus countries, the exact opposite. So, you know, we have to get back to first principles and get back to the legitimate purpose of what the military is for. This agenda for control is fundamentally flawed right from the get-go. 
And uh, it stems, in my view, from industrialization, which brought tremendous blessings to humanity. Uh, tremendous. And it gave mankind tremendous control over our natural world, which is good. That's why we're created. We have dominion over the earth. However, a big mistake was made, and I understand how it could be made. Uh, you know, this idea of automation and machinery and engineering and science, you know, it was taken from the su successful production of goods and mistakenly uh, believed to be like, well, let's automate humanity. And this is a failed idea. This will not work. We are not robots. We are not software programs. Our bodies are not operating systems that you upgrade with vaccines. This is all nonsense. But this is where the idea stems from. They, they feel like they should control everything. Control. Look at how we can control nature. Well, humans are a part of nature. Let's go after them next. The difference is we are not robots. We have our own free will, our own goals. We do not obey like a robot does. You know, they wanted seven billion arms to get shots. Only one billion did. Why? Because people have their own minds. They search for the truth. And if they find out that this is not what they should be doing, they don't obey. And that just bothers the authoritarians. They want us to act like a software program, but we will not at any point. So they're constantly trying to trick us with a new scheme, new scheme, new scheme. They are doomed to failure, and that is very good. So I've been thinking about a lot of things like you just heard from from Dr. Paul and from Chris on in a different way, and it's a, something I'm probably going to do a full show on in the next couple of weeks. And it's the, 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 there is dichotomies. I often talk about the false dichotomies, you know, Coker, Pepsi, Democrat or Republican. Um, but there are real dichotomies. There are there is an observable pattern in life that things will split into twos, and they then the twos split in, and it keeps going, and you get Fibonacci and all that going on. But with human beings, especially, we are fairly binary-minded individuals. Maybe that's why when we figured out how to code computers, we chose to use binary code um, on/off switches, right? Um, and there is two ways people approach problems and they are I will do something about the problem or somebody needs to do something about the problem for me that's that's it, it, it's fundamental and there is a predisposition I think in certain people to be one way or another and I don't know if it's nature or nurture genetic or how they were brought up and how they were taught but everybody has an override switch And what I mean by that is if I put you in a room and set the thing on fire, eventually, no matter how many times you've dialed 911, you're going to go out the window. And if you have to break the window, whatever you got to, you're going to get out. You're going to take responsibility for the problem. How does that apply to what we're talking about here? All of this intervention stuff that our people in this country tolerate of their government, all, and, and Ron Paul's right, the, the United States is a bully to its own people and abroad. And a lot of the bullying that you're seeing in our country now and you're so upset about, we've been doing that shit for over a hundred years all around the world. And it comes from, well, I don't like how expensive gas is. So instead of saying, I need to do something about how much gas costs me, right? Well, if we bomb this country, gas prices will go down. That mindset's out there. People don't think about it that way, but that's when they're like, well, you know, we got to do what we got to do. Yeah. Like, that's how that happens. 
I want my problem solved. I don't feel safe, so it's okay that you bombed a hospital with children in it or a wedding that had children in attendance because we got the bad guy. This is this mindset that it's somebody else needs to fix my problem, and it goes into everything. You know, my education's too expensive. Somebody should pay my bills, or I'm going to figure a different path. There's both of those paths available right now, and this is where it all gets mucked up. It gets mucked up when the government makes the course of solving your own problem impossible or so rife with problems that you know full well the reason this is hard is they made it hard. So you know what? The hell with it, even if you're the person that has the predisposition to fix it yourself. Now, y'all fix it, you messed it up. The problem with that, though, is you've now gone to an arsonist You've handed them a gallon of gasoline and some matches and asked them to fix the fire problem. The only thing you will ever get if you do that is more fires, more damage, and more danger. And the, the, the people of this country, both sides of the political dichotomy, continue to double down on that formula. We just need the government to fix it. And if you keep asking a bully to fix something, he'll keep bullying you and he'll keep bullying other people. Let's take another one. This one on installation of solar and qualifying for tax credits. I know some people might tune into this and go, wait a minute, this dude says he's an anarchist. Now he's talking about tax subsidies. Uh, just for those who haven't heard this before, the United States government has extorted money from me for my entire life. Now, I was going to say adult life, but I, I started paying taxes when I was 15 years old. And until I get every penny back, we don't have that conversation. I want my money back, and I want you to get your money back, too. And the other side of this is, if you're going to put solar in anyway, and there's money available from the federal government who stole your money, you should go get it. The thing is, it can be really expensive to have somebody do it for you. You can save a lot of money doing it yourself, but will that cost you the tax subsidy? It doesn't have to. Sean will tell you all about it. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I am answering a question about... Installing your own PV solar system. Uh, so here's the question. If I install my own PV solar system, am I still eligible to receive state and or federal tax credits? Details. I am in New York State and have received a couple professional solar installation quotes. The numbers are sky high. After a quote of $106,000 without batteries, I actually thought a quote for $69,000 with two 10-kilowatt batteries wasn't that bad. Then, after perusing Senelect.com, I realized just how inflated those numbers are. As you said in your podcast with Jack, I can get used 360-watt panels for $178 each. The quoted systems want $1,000-plus for new panels. I can also buy lithium-iron phosphate batteries for less than half of what they and Tesla are charging. I would like to get the state and federal rebates if possible, and I'm seriously considering getting the NAPSEP or North American Board of Certified Energy Professionals certification in order to qualify if necessary. Thank you, Catskill Frank. Frank, yeah, the good news is you can 100% get the tax credits for putting your own system in. I'm not going to get into what the New York State requirements are, but you could buy all the components, do most of the work yourself, Sub out the terminal connections to a licensed electrician, and if needed, have a NABCEP qualifier rubber stamp your plans. That's exactly what we did for two projects in Tennessee to get around the state requirements without without having to pay retail. And we, you know, one of those projects paid itself back within three years. Um, now you might have to do some searching to find the right person, but there is a list on the NABCEP website. 
if you're in an area where um, there's a lot of people that are doing the solar work, um, you could just call, just go down the list and call them up one by one and say, hey, here's what I want to do. I want to design my system or have you design it. I'll pay you for your time. I'm going to source all the components. I'm going to do all of the labor work. And then I want you guys to come in and do the stuff that the uh, grid owner or the state uh, require. Um, and, and, you know, you do that. You take a thirty or $40,000 labor bill down to two or three or $4,000. So uh, now that being said, getting your own certification is tough um, as you have to be part of several installed systems as either an installer or a designer in order to sit for the exam. Um, as you are right as it relates to paying uh, the cost of paying um, retail, though. You know, I don't know the size of your system, but you're talking about $100,000 for a system that's crazy, unless your system's crazy, and it might be. Um, but, you know, just as a point of reference, I designed an off-grid system that had 20 megawatt hours of annual production and over 30 kilowatt hours of lith lithium iron phosphate storage for under $40,000 before the tax credit. It'd be under 30 after the tax credit. Um, and this guy was going to be able to run a house with multiple mini split uh, air conditioners, have a welder, have a air compressor, all of his power tools, uh, run his whole shop and his house off of this system uh, for under 40 grand. And, you know, maybe it, he costs, uh, maybe if he wants to do a grid tied system, it adds five to $10,000 to that. But at that point, he's selling power back to the grid at the same time, uh, and maybe it becomes worth it. But this system was for a full standalone off-grid system. Um, so, you know, when you're grid-tied, you can use the battery, the, the grid as your battery, which is helpful. But when you're connecting to their grid, you got to play by their rules. Uh, the other thing to, to look into, uh, being in New York, you might just want to double-check and make sure that it's not going to cause a problem with your insurance, uh, particularly if this is roof-mounted solar. Uh, so just another thing to, to, to look into. I've had several people I've done designs for, um, you know, do their own uh, DIY mounting and everything else, and the insurance company did not have a problem with it. But I can't think of anyone that I've worked for in New York that has done that. So just a couple of things to keep your, um, keep your mind on as you're putting that system together. But, yes, you do not have to have a professional put it in just to qualify for the tax credit. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, keep the questions coming. I'll keep answering them. And anyway, uh, in addition to everything Sean said, I do have a link in the show notes today. It'll be right next to the bullet point for Sean's segment for the NABCEP Pro Directory where you can find someone to take care of that for you. Next up, Doc Bones on Burns. Bur Bones on Burns. Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, plus designer of quality medical kits at altonfirstaid.com. A wide variety of situations, both in normal times and disaster settings, put us in proximity with high levels of heat. If we're knocked off the grid, it won't be unusual to cook food over a fire of our own making, something very few of us do now on a regular basis. As such, the survival medic often will be faced with burn injuries. Having the materials and knowledge to treat burns will be absolutely necessary in times of trouble. Burns can be caused by contact with sources other than flames, including scalds due to contact with hot water or steam, contact with electricity associated with, I don't know, lightning or other another source, friction burns due to contact with hard surfaces such as roads, road rash, carpets or hard flooring, 
Skin exposure to extreme cold and winds, yes, extreme cold can cause burns, chemical spills, and radiation due to contact with energy emitted by x-rays and other medical testing or treatment. Also, dirty bombs, thermonuclear explosions, gosh, well, obviously, that radiation will cause burns too. In general, the different types of burns are treated similarly, but some burns, like those caused by electricity or radiation, can cause internal damage without destroying the skin. For example, inhalation of superheated air may cause damage to lung tissue. Off the grid, the lack of advanced care will make these cases a true challenge for the medic. The severity of a burn injury and resulting chance of death or disability depends in part on the percentage of the total body surface involved, as measured by the rule of nines. Assessing the percentage of body surface area burned is standard practice and helpful in modern medicine. It may, however, have less practical benefit in austere settings where transport to a burn unit is not an option. In any case, knowing the rule of nines gives the medic an idea of the chances for recovery of a particular burn victim. Burns to the face, feet, hands, genitals, and lungs are considered the most problematic. Besides total surface area involved, an important factor is the depth of penetration of the burn. This is usually measured in degrees. Most burns you'll see will be due to excessive exposure to the sun. A majority of them will be first-degree burns. In first-degree burns, the patient may be red as a lobster, but only the superficial layer of the skin, called the epidermis, is injured. Besides redness, a first-degree burn will feel warm and dry. It'll be painful to the touch, especially when large areas of skin are involved. You may have experienced this yourself. Fortunately, major complications are rare. Treatment is simply focused on relieving the discomfort. Immersion in a cool bath will be helpful, at, at the very least. You should run cool water over the injury. A cool, moist cloth on the burn for 20 minutes will give some relief as well. So will anti-inflammatory medicines such as ibuprofen. Aloe vera, zinc oxide, and benzocaine sprays are effective alternatives. Expect the discomfort to improve after about 24 hours. Until then, avoid constrictive, tight clothing and wear light fabrics such as cotton. Prevention, of course, is worth a pound of cure. To avoid this type of burn, don't sunbathe. A tan is not healthy. Avoid being outside during peak sun hours. Wear long pants and sleeves, hats and sunglasses when you're in the sun, and spend time in the shade whenever possible. If extended exposure to sunlight is unavoidable, be certain to use a sunblock. Apply 15 minutes prior to going outside and reapply frequently during the day. Even water-resistant sunscreen should be reapplied every one to two hours. Most people fail to put enough on and put it on frequently enough, so be sure to use plenty. As an aside, sunblock and sunscreen are not exactly the same thing. Sunblock contains tiny particles that block and reflect UV light, whereas a sunscreen contains substances that absorb UV light, thus preventing it from penetrating the skin below. Sunblocks and sunscreens should be part of every medic supplies. The SPF rating, you may have seen that, it's called the Sun Protection Factor, was developed in 1962 to measure the capacity of a product to protect against UV radiation. It measures the length of exposure to the sun before you burn. An SPF factor of at least 15 is recommended. The higher the number, the longer it takes for the skin to burn. Without sunscreen, it takes about 20 minutes for your skin to start turning red. SPF 15 blocks 94% of the sun's rays, SPF 30 blocks 97%, SPF 45 98%. Although the increase in protection may seem small, higher SPF numbers are especially benefit to those with fair skin. Besides the sun, first degree injuries will most likely be related to cooking or campfires. 
Using hand protection will prevent many of these burns, as will careful supervision of children near campfires that are always fascinated by them, and food preparation areas. Second-degree burns are deeper injuries that penetrate through the superficial epidermis and partially through the deeper layer of the skin called the dermis. Thus, they're often called partial thickness burns. While first-degree burns may cover a large percentage of surface area without becoming life-threatening, a smaller percentage of the body covered with significant second-degree burns may require serious medical intervention. Unlike first-degree burns, which appear dry, second-degree burns will be moist in appearance and often have blisters with reddened bases. The area will have a tendency to weep clear or even whitish fluid. Second-degree burns will cause swelling as well, so it's important to remove jewelry like rings and bracelets immediately. To treat second-degree burns, remove the victim from the heat source immediately. Run cool water over the injury for about 10 to 15 minutes. Avoid ice, however, which will traumatize already damaged skin. After running water over the wound, pat the area dry. The next step is to apply moist skin dressings such as Xeroform, Second Skin, or nonstick dressings with layers of products like aloe vera, Silvadine, or Aquaphor. Be sure to replace these regularly and review the process of healing. Other actions should include elevating burned extremities, applying cool but not cold compresses, giving oral pain relief such as ibuprofen, Advil, or Motrin. Applying anesthetic creams such as benzocaine or lidocaine. Protecting adjacent burned fingers and toes with a dry barrier in between. Encouraging hydration is also very, very important. It's also important to avoid peeling burned skin from a second-degree burn as it sometimes comes off in sheets, leaving even more raw tissue exposed. I experienced this myself as a kid when well-meaning parents peeled off about a foot of it off my back. Believe me, it wasn't fun healing from that. If the patient is having problems sleeping, use a product called a blanket lifter or improvise one to keep sheets above extensive and painful burns. We're often asked whether the pop blister is associated with second-degree burns. It's wisest to avoid the lancing of blisters if possible unless they're infected and filled with pus. Some very large blisters, however, will break with the slightest pressure and may benefit from a controlled drainage. If this is the case, use a sterilized needle or scalpel blade to pierce the side of the blister near the base. The roof of the blister is often retained to provide additional protection to the healing skin beneath. It's important to avoid the use of lard or butter on burns. They tend to keep in heat and may worsen the injury. Egg whites and toothpaste, long considered to be home remedies, may actually increase the risk of infection. It's important to use sterile saline solution to keep the burn area and nonstick dressings moist, especially in more severe second-degree burns. As well, a number of natural remedies like honey, vinegar, black tea, hay witch hazel, and comfrey are acceptable options as burn treatment. Third-degree burns, those that go completely through both the dermis and epidermis, well, they're another critter altogether. I'm running long here, so for more information on those, check out our website at doomandbloom.net. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, would you like to experience the joy that comes with helping the elderly? Well, you can help this elderly guy by checking out our entire line of quality medical kits at altonfirstaid.com. Thanks again. So it's seldom that I disagree with Doc. Here I do. Here I do. A suntan is healthy. Being in the sun is important. I'm going to have to push back on him a little bit and see how he rectifies this against his article about getting enough solar exposure for vitamin D3 production. What is not healthy 
is being burned by the sun. Now, the advice he gave will keep you from being burned by the sun. But it's, a, it's an interesting correlation. Correlation doesn't prove causation, but it's always worth looking at that the more sunscreen we've used, the more skin cancer people have gotten as well. Um, the, the way to deal with this, in my opinion, is that as the sun becomes more intense for your climate for the year, You go out into the sun for brief periods of time, and you do develop a tan, and that does protect you, and it does develop your, your natural vitamin D. Um, but you don't overdo it, and eventually you really get to a point where you don't burn. Now, maybe sunbathing, uh, there are people that overdo that. But I get out in the sun constantly, and by this time of year, Um, I have to be in a really bad situation for, for, for my skin to burn. Now, if I'm going to be, like say I'm going to be in a boat bouncing around in the water, completely exposed to the sun nonstop for four or five hours, I don't care how developed my tan is. I wear, and I have shirts on the website uh, in T-Spaz. Uh, where you, they're, they're specifically designed so that I can have long sleeves, etc., and they still wick moisture off your body so you're not hot and you don't burn. When I'm at the beach long term, I wear a shirt almost all the time, not because I'm not proud of my physique or anything, but because I don't like to burn. Burning is painful. So I think we do need a lot of sun, but we also need it at the right amount per time. I think is a better way to look at it. And I don't care how tan you get. I don't care if, you, if you're, you're, you're a, a black person and a very dark-skinned black person. You, you, you will burn if you're in the sun long enough with enough intensity. So we do need to moderate that. So I think the, tr the, 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 the proper path is somewhere in the middle here. Anyway, that's, I just had to say that. Let's move on and talk about coppicing and fodder trees and specifically supporting rabbits with them. Hey guys, I'm back this week with another Expert Council segment on fodder trees, this time specifically for rabbits. For Nick Ferguson, how do you manage young mulberries as fodder for rabbits? Hello, since Jack is a jerk, I have re recently added a trio of meat rabbits to my suburban backyard. I have a mature mulberry tree, as well as a few two- to three-year-old mulberries, I've been trimming a few branches for my rabbits every day throughout the growing season. Should I coppice the young mulberries? When? <clears throat> How do I harvest the new growth next year, i.e. all at once and save as tree hay, or just a few branches at a time like I've been doing? I'm in Zone 5, Northern Illinois. Thanks, April. P.S. for Jack, I'm a longtime listener and have learned so much from you. Thank you for the Rabbit Podcast earlier this year. We live in a very restrictive town that doesn't allow anything except that rabbits have flown under their radar and now we finally have livestock. That's a great, great example of what we can do even in a restrictive environment. All right, that's a great question, April. Um, So the best way I've found is to let those mulberry trees reach a trunk thickness of about a tool handle or a broom handle before coppicing them in the winter about two to three inches from the soil. And this will set you up for some explosive growth the following spring. It'll just re-sucker from that stump. And you want to let those trees get about three to four foot tall before you start harvesting the tops. And you want to leave between 18 and 24 inches of tree branches full of leaves down at the ground. But you can harvest the rest. So what we want to think of these trees 
um, as kind of like you do a lawn. You don't crank that lawn mower up and set the cutting height as low as it'll go and cut that lawn at the dirt level unless you want to kill your lawn. So you want to set that deck high and leave plenty of leaf behind to keep that soil cool and to leave the plant enough leaf that it can still make sugars and go on thriving, right? So we want to do the same thing for our trees. They're plants too. Don't scalp them. Leave enough leaves to keep making sugars so that tree can continue living and producing more. Other than that, you can go out there and you know mow that lawn as often as you'd like and maintain a healthy stand of grass, or in this case, trees. So you can harvest as frequently as you'd like. Um, let me look back at your question. Um, all at once, stay this tree hay, or just a few branches at a time like I've been doing. So <clears throat> you can do it uh, just once a week or as, as fast as those trees regrow and feed fresh. If that's all you have is enough to just feed them fresh leaves, that, that's what I do. If you have so much that you can preserve some, then you can ferment them. Just look up making uh, silage or making uh, fermented uh, mulberry leaves. I have a playlist on Homegrown Liberty on the Homegrown Liberty YouTube channel. I have a playlist there with like 20-something uh, videos on how to how to manage what uh, these systems look like, uh, how to ferment the leaves. There's a whole bunch of stuff on there of just videos I've found on YouTube. So there's a whole bunch of stuff on there. Um, so you can ferment the, the leaves into um, silage, essentially, or you can dry them as tree hay, um, or you can just cut them fresh as often as you have fresh leaves. So if you're working on transforming that mature mulberry tree into something you can harvest, then you'll want to start pruning it to a manageable height and pollard it. Um, or if it's not too old, you can always cut it down and let it sucker back out and coppice the tree. I'd say if it's about four inch diameter, maybe six inches diameter at the, at the base, you know, about four inches off the ground or smaller, you're safe to coppice it. I've never tried it on a larger tree than that, but... Uh, you know, I don't want to be the guy that says, yeah, cut it down and then the tree dies. So if it's about that size, you can probably get away with just cutting it down to the ground this winter and coppicing it, uh, even if it's mature. Um, but you can always top work a tree back to a smaller size where you can manage it as a pollard, which is just um, essentially coppicing except up way off the ground. You know, it can be ladder height or it can be just uh, high enough that you can reach it. Um, but I have a suggestion for you. Get yourself a hybrid willow tree to add to that backyard fodder operation. They grow faster than mulberry, and your need will be the volume of feed over the high protein content leaves, which mulberry has much higher protein leaves if they're white mulberry. If they're red mulberry, it's really not any better than the hybrid willow. And that hybrid willow will get you a massive amount of leaves and stems that the rabbits will love to eat. And then you can almost go 100% with willow leaves for rabbit food. And the bonus on the willow is that you can always plant more with simple 12-inch sticks cut from the tree by just jabbing them in the ground where you want a willow to grow. And you can get creative with some gorilla gardening too. I mean, who cares if there's a willow tree growing in a ditch somewhere or a handful of willows pop up in a green belt near your house. So I hope that helps in your self-reliance pursuits. 
I'm Nick Ferguson from RarePlantStore.com and HomegrownLiberty.com. Do good things. You know, I've been thinking about this exact thing. Rabbits combined with the Korean natural farming methodology uh, for fodder production. And then the rabbit bedding material being used in the fashion that we talked about this week with Sherry Miller um, going back to gardens and trees. And I, I think if you combine that with the type of aquaculture stuff that I talk about all the time, basic permaculture principles, a small food forest, gardens, etc. in a backyard, and maybe a few chickens. I, I look at that and go, you have the potential for 100% self-sufficiency. And, and that doesn't mean that you would live that way. It would mean that you could. And it, this is one of the reasons I'm very excited about the plans that I have in November. I did have a guy that we had on before uh, named uh, Stephen Reisner. And he he talked about IMOs when, when, when I had him on to talk about aquaponics. And I, I invited him and... He said he would have loved to have come, but he'll actually be in Thailand in November. So I've lost that. But I do have Billy Bond will be presenting here. And I've given Billy Bond and Nick Ferguson both two hours of presentation time. And they will be on the opening day of my workshop in November. And Billy's going to talk about his his method of harnessing waste streams to feed your livestock. And Nick is going to talk about it more from an apocalypse-proof manner, using fodder and other things. And I'm, I'm starting to look more and more at this is actually how we build resilient communities. That the first security is food security. The first, the first security is water security. That's the first thing we have to secure, but that's actually pretty easy to do in our world. And we can easily store enough water that if what we rely on for water goes away for a while, we're fine. It's not comfortable, but you're, you're not going to die. There's a lot of ways to handle water. If you have water security and food security, then you have a population that is stable and safe. And stable and safe populations become self-policing for physical security really, really quickly. And if we can start teaching people to build that security at a neighborhood level, not just an individual level, maybe we can start, like, a lot of things are coming together this year with my guests, like the, the, the gentleman that I have had on to, to talk about strong towns. I don't completely agree with kind of the 100% all-in on, on the idea that we're going to rebuild these urban centers um, that, that he talked about, but I like the idea. What I like the idea of is, is hundreds of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds if not thousands, of re revitalized small towns and small communities all across the country. There is so much opportunity out there to do this. and But I think the first security is food security. And food is becoming ridiculously expensive, and meat is becoming prohibitively expensive, and so we're going to need a solution like Texas Slim. As I said, the, the people that have come on the show this year have just been this, that seems disconnected, but it's not. 
we're not going to all raise cattle in our backyard, but we can start supporting local ranchers and have more beef availability, and we can start completely circumventing the government's system and start doing you know, on-site processing, custom processors, etc. Uh, and that might mean that we need a hell of a lot more people in that business, and that's a good thing. Then there's plenty of work for them to do. And then we can start doing smaller livestock like pigs and sheep. And, and all of a sudden, you got food security in spades. And if you look at the parts of the world that have the least secure societies, the places where you're most afraid to walk down the street, those places lack food security first. That's when everything falls apart. That's when people lose hope. And when people lose hope, they'll do whatever they have to do. One of the reasons we teach you to store food is why. Is why. So you don't have to go kill somebody to feed your kids, because if it comes down to it, you probably would. Everybody likes to believe that they would. Not me, not me. You look at your kids starving. And it's so easy to judge a person that ends up in that position and does horrible things. You look at your child starving to death. You will do what you have to to feed them. You will do what you have to to feed them. So let's secure our food first. Anyway, let's move on with this. Lightning round on investing in economics from John Pugliano of investablewealth.com. Hello, TSP. We have a small lightning round of questions to get to. First one comes from Karen. She's looking for better, higher-paying interest rates on her emergency fund. She's going to retire in about 10 years. It sounds like she has a pretty well-established and diversified retirement portfolio. But her concern is, is that her four months worth of emergency savings aren't keeping up with inflation. Now, she's invested in a cash equivalent money market fund. And Karen, you're probably doing about as good as you're going to do in terms of trying to get an interest rate and protect short term non-retirement emergency savings. Money market funds now are all paying probably, I'd say, at least 2%, which is considerably better than what I'm seeing in most savings accounts. The only disadvantage to the money market fund is that it's not FDIC insured like a bank savings account would be. However, from a historical perspective, money market funds have been incredibly stable at holding their dollar value. So I, I wouldn't overly worry about that. So from a total liquidity and yield risk reward perspective, you're probably in about the best place as you're going to be. And that's because really the only other alternative you have is to go into the stock market or go directly into bond or bond funds. And all of those carry risks. And yes, even bonds carry risks, and specifically bond funds. A lot of people think you can't lose money in bonds, and that's why Wall Street talks about having a 60-40 equity to bond split as a stable portfolio. But you know that if you've been holding something like a 20-year treasury bond fund since, oh, say, in the last two, two and a half years, you are likely down as much as 30%. So bonds can and do lose money based on rising interest rates. And then, of course, we know that stocks and equities, obviously, can be very volatile and lose money as well. So if you have the risk profile, if you're not going to panic and sell when the market goes down, and if you can afford to be getting this variable rate of return, for example, you know, you have four months of emergency savings. Well, year to date, if you had that four months worth of emergency savings in the stock market, then with the market going down, the value of it's going to have decreased. And, you know, your four months saving is going to be more like a three or three and a half months saving. Can you afford that? Do you have that type of risk tolerance 
as well as the financial resilience to be able to withstand any downturns in the market. If you don't, then sticking with an FDIC-insured bank account or a cash-equivalent money market fund is really the only and the best options. Now, if you do want to get into the market, and even if you want to get into very short-duration bond funds, uh, there's something like PIMCO's Mint, which has the ticker symbol M-I-N-T. I've seen it vary over the last few years as much as maybe 4 or 5% to the downside, so you definitely have interest rate risk there. It wouldn't be as excessive as if you go out further in duration, but again, the problem with that is it's only paying a very fraction of a percent higher than the money market fund you're probably already in, and you do have the possibility of losing principal. If you have the risk tolerance and you're not financially brittle, then I think the best way to keep up and exceed inflation is to be invested in equities of companies that have profitable long-term growth. I personally don't have an emergency fund. I keep my wealth invested in appreciating assets, and if an emergency comes up or if I want to make a large cash purchase, I simply sell off some of my liquid assets like stocks outside of a retirement account. But I can do that because my portfolio has been growing and accumulating profits for in excess of 37 years. So it all comes down to each individual's personal situation. Now, our next question comes from Hunter. He's asking about his 19-year-old son who wants to get started in investing, and I'd like to know if there's any books or courses, you know, that would recommend. Well, Hunter, you know, there are probably over a million books and courses and different things on various introductory and complex investing strategies, and yet no one of those products successfully works 100% for all people. Otherwise, everybody that ever took those courses or bought those books would be rich, and virtually none of them are. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not value in reading books and studying and taking investment classes and courses and things like that, but the reality is that methods are less important than how they're specifically and consistently applied in real practice. And so since we're all different individuals and we have different risk tolerances and different abilities and skills and levels of wealth that we're starting out with and we're doing it at different times in different market cycles and phases, uh, that's a long way of saying that no one thing is going to work all times for all people. So here's the bottom line. For a 19-year-old or for anybody that's interested in investing, I'd encourage them to broadly start reading books about investing. There's a company called Wiley Press. They produce a lot of industry and professional journals, and they also have a crossover for the mass market retail investor. And so they have a number of series of investment books that have pretty much been written by a whole who's who of anybody in the investment or financial industry. That's a good place to start. The books are easy to find on Amazon or better yet, especially a lot of the older books can be found, you know, free of charge at your library. I'd encourage your son to start there, look at a bunch of titles, see what appeals to him, and not read one book, but read three. Then digest those concepts, think about them, understand how he can apply them in his own particular situation, and then go implement them, and don't stop there. Read three more books and do the exact same process, and then three more books, and on and on until he gets his 10,000 hours in, And at that point, he'll be well on his way to building a significant amount of wealth as an investor. And more importantly than all that, I would encourage him and anybody else that's young or, you know, 19, 20 years old, remember that the most single important and largest and biggest investment you'll ever make is in yourself. So I wouldn't dissuade anybody from wanting to invest in the stock market or real estate or other asset classes. But I promise you, the most impactful investing you'll ever make 
is by investing in yourself and expanding and building your earning and career potential. And the sooner you do that and get that established, the more money and wealth you'll be generating, and that's that much more you'll be able to invest in the future. Okay, then we'll end up with a question on a similar note, and this comes from Jesse in New Mexico. He's got a 12-year-old son. They're homeschooling him, and Jesse's looking for some courses that are centered on teaching kids about financial literacy. Well, again, Jesse, there's probably a million of them out there. I personally don't endorse or recommend any specific training programs. But I think you're on the right track with what you mentioned in your email and especially how you're involved with your son and you're teaching him about small business and, you know, operating the lemonade stand and those real world experiences. As far as homeschool and a curriculum for teaching kids financial literacy, kind of like I mentioned in the previous question with Hunter, I think personal application is the most important thing because we all learn so differently. So what I'd recommend is a variation of what Jack's talked about a lot. You've often heard Jack talk about Investopedia, term of the day. You can sign up for that and receive a free email every day that has some type of a financial term and an explanation of what that term means. That's a fantastic way for anybody to increase their financial literacy. What I would further add to that, especially as an active homeschooling parent, is to have your son read stories that are in the financial press and get an idea of what's actually going on in the economy and in the business community. And then based on what he's reading in the news and what you're discussing with him, go to Investopedia, and they have an extensive dictionary of financial terms. And they're literally thousands of words with really good definitions and links to Further study those concepts if you're interested. So that's a great way as a homeschooler that you can tailor your child's education with current real-world events and then looking up all the terms that you're not familiar with so he's not only expanding his vocabulary and his understanding, but he's applying it in real time with what's actually going on in the business world and in the financial community. It'll be a little bit more work to do it this way, but I think that you'll get so much more out of it because it will be individualized and personalized to what your son is interested in and what he's actually seeing take place in the real world. Well, hey, as always, everybody, thanks for your questions. Until the next time, this is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Good stuff from John. Let's go ahead and uh, hear from Tim Toolman Cook on Ethanol Fuels and small engines. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This one comes from John. He says, I got a question for Toolman Tim, or whoever you think can answer this one the best. What are the benefits of using ethanol-free gasoline in my generator, lawn equipment, and vehicles? I live in central Texas, and there are several new gas stations now offering ethanol-free gas. It costs from $0.80 cents to a dollar more per gallon, and I'll have to go 15 miles out of my way to get it. I'm just wondering if it's worth it using the ethanol-added gas. Will it store better? Thanks, John. So, I'm not a huge fan of ethanol added to gasoline. It's an unnecessary evil. It's one of those things that exists and it's hard to, you can't 
get any gas without it here in Canada. So there's a few issues with ethanol. First, it can cause more rust and corrosion on metal parts. It can soften and eat up rubber and plastic parts. So it's especially pronounced in small gas-powered engines like a lawnmower, a weed whipper, that kind of stuff that have those diaphragms, little springs in the carburetor. Ethanol is also more prone to phase separation. So if you don't know what phase separation is, that's what happens when a bit of water gets in with fuel. Now, in traditional gasoline, it's not as big a deal, but what happens with ethanol-laced fuel is the ethanol and the water bind together, the ethanol drops to the bottom, and then you end up having this kind of two-level, two-layer gasoline on the top and water ethanol on the bottom, and it helps facilitate the gas going stale much, much quicker. So that is an issue. <laughs> they actually recommend shaking your gas can for 30 seconds before using it to, <laughs> to help alleviate those issues. Now, nothing can go wrong shaking a gas can. Just ask me. <laughs> now, on the other side of things, the experts, especially the people who sell ethanol gasoline, say that, and most of the tests do say this, so I need to be fair, that E10 gas, so that's ethanol with 10%, sorry, that's gasoline with 10% ethanol, is safe for small engines. So just so you know, there's three types of ethanol fuel out there. E10 is gas with 10% ethanol. E15 is gas with 15%, and something else, E85 is 85% ethanol with a bit of gasoline mixed in. So what is ethanol? It's basically a glorified moonshine, or, or an alcohol, made from organic material. In most cases around here, it's corn. In some places, it's sugarcane, or even wood waste. Now, they do say, for the most part, that... E10 is good for your engine, or at least it won't completely harm it, just so you know. Now, I personally, if I could, would not use it. But like I said, up here in Canada, not much of a choice. One more thing I wanted to share with you, just so you realize where I'm coming from with this ethanol thing. Found this quote, it says, pumps dispensing multiple blends from the same system can cause contamination. For example, according to a 2010 technical statement by the Engine Manufacturers Association, pumps retain 0.2 gallons of residual fuel. So if a customer selected E85, the previous customer, the fuel in your one gallon container may actually contain 25% ethanol blend instead of the desired E10. So you need to be careful. Now, for me, if it were an option, I would gladly have all 12 of my 5-gallon jugs filled. It's a small price to pay to have peace of mind to know that the fuel's going to last a little bit longer, it's going to run a little bit better, and it's going to be better for my small engines. You know, an extra 4 to $5 a can, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily just run over there, you know, the extra, would you say, 12 or 15 miles to pick up that ethanol-free fuel, but absolutely, if, you, if you're going by or you're heading in that general direction, take a five-gallon can, fill it up, and run your lawn equipment off of it. You won't be sorry. There's just, there's just too many unknowns or too many things that I don't personally like about ethanol-based fuel that seems like it's going to cause some issues in small engines. And like I said, in small engines, things can become 
problems can become pronounced really, really quickly because of issues like that. And again, what would happen if the previous customer had, say, E85, for instance? Just something to think about. But yes, for me, I think the extra 4 to $5 per 5-gallon can is worth it. It's up to you. I wouldn't waste my time to go get it, but if I was heading in that direction, I'd absolutely fill it up. So I hope that helps. All right, guys, two quick things. I just recently launched the Patch of the Month Club. So if you're into morale patches or technical, tactical patches, whatever you want to call them, every single month I have one coming out, my design based on something funny, something irrelevant, or something politically incorrect. $10 a month, $100 a year. You can sign up at patchofthemonth.co. And don't forget the workshop podcast, three times weekly, live Thursday, Saturday, Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. All right, guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, so time for my segment, and we're going to start out with the gentleman that wrote me and said he has a hard time talking to his wife about not eating the food that she's cooking because it hurts her feelings. And I really don't know enough to be sure what's going on here, so I can only speculate so that all has to be taken with that understanding of what I'm about to say. But if it was me, my basic conversation would be something like this. Honey, I have made a decision for myself and my health, and I feel like I was going the wrong way in life, and I feel like I have a problem when I consume carbohydrates and sugars. And I look at it exactly the same way that an addict would look at a drug problem or an alcoholic would look at an alcohol problem. There's people that can responsibly consume these uh, drugs or alcohol. It, it, it can be done. People do it every day, and they don't destroy their life with it. And there's people that get to a point in their life where they realize, if I keep doing this, I'm going to end up in a real... I'm either going to kill myself fast or kill myself slow. Uh, a lot of people with alcohol, they don't kill themselves fast, but you know they die in their 70s and they could have lived to their 90s and it really is that their liver was and the rest of their uh, organ systems were heavily damaged. So there's people that at a point in their life say, I, I can't drink anymore or I can't do any sort of uh, substance anymore. And they have to quit. They can't have a little bit now and then. They have to quit. You can't, there are people that like, if they can be, uh, you know, not touch alcohol for 10 years and put two beers in them and they'll go off on a bender and they'll completely derail all the work they did to get there. When it comes to diet, there are people who can eat in a way that I choose not to, that I don't think is optimum even for them. But honestly, they look fine and they are relatively healthy. And there are people who can't. There are people who can't. Myself... Dr. Ken Berry, one of the reasons we're both so fanatical about this is because we know what happens when we go off the reservation and how quickly everything declines. If I start eating, let's say, 100 carbohydrates a day instead of keeping it under 20, I will immediately start to put on weight. My blood sugar will immediately go up. My A1C, which is your indicator for type 2 diabetes, will immediately go up. All my metabolic problems come back. I immediately don't feel well anymore, and I immediately start to eat more than that 100-carbohydrate limit. That's what happens to me. And I think a lot of people, when they find this, they, they don't realize how bad things were. So I would say you need to understand, if, if, if I was a recovering alcoholic and you offered me a beer and I said no, you wouldn't get hurt by that. 
even if you made the beer yourself. You'd understand that as a recovering, I don't drink alcohol anymore. And it really is the same thing, and sugar really is a drug, and some people really do become addicted. And most people that find the pathway to good health is through keto, paleo, etc., are carbohydrate addicts, and that's part of why it works so well for them. Because anybody that uses enough of a drug will become an addict. And people often find comfort in food, and also I found, this was true of myself, since I found comfort in food, if you give somebody sugar who finds comfort in food, they will eat a lot more. And just one day of, oh, I'm going to let myself have cake, and next thing you know, you're off the rails for a week or more, and you have to fight to get back where you are. So please help me not do that. It has nothing to do with you. Now, there's another possibility here, and I'm not, I, I don't know this. This is pure speculation. But a lot of times when there's a couple and one decides to improve themselves, the other one feels like that person's pulling away from them, and even without intending to, they may sabotage their partner. It may not be like a calculated, I need to do this thing. With subconscious, they just... They, and what they fear is if they get a lot better, maybe they won't want me anymore. I don't know you. I don't know your wife. I don't know how the right delicate way to reassure her that's not happening. But you might need to figure out how to do that because that might, big M, might, all caps, the whole world word might be at play here. I don't know. But I've seen it happen a lot. Where one partner, like, they improve their, 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 their education and they start getting a better job. They, they, they get, they, you know, maybe they don't go on a diet, but they get into, like, running or weightlifting and they, they get their physique back. And the other partner, not participating, feels that is a threat. And they will either intentionally or subconsciously sabotage their partner. Making pasta or cake for someone who is on a diet that excludes those things is a sabotage thing, even if it's not intended to be. It is. And it shouldn't be done. Now, the last thing I'll say on this, and you know, people have to decide for themselves, there is nothing more powerful than a married couple who enters into a journey together. And there is no one, I don't care how well you look now, etc., unless you have something specific like an allergy to meat or something, And, and that is a thing, and it's very rare, to, but I would make the exception there. There is no one who will not do better on this path. This is the proper human diet. And if the concern is if he gets better, he might go away, then get better with him. And I'm, I'm, I'm very cautious saying that. I thought about should I say that or not, because I'm now in the middle of someone else's marriage, and I don't even know him. I could be completely wrong about everything. This woman may be thin and healthy and vibrant and no concerns about that whatsoever. But that actually is its own problem because then that person doesn't understand, I can't eat the way you do. So either way, partners should support each other. And if you're not going to engage in the same journey, then support the journey of your partner. And maybe play this for your wife. And say, even what he got wrong, he's trying to help, and it's not me, and maybe this will speak to you. I don't know. Sometimes a person will listen to a third party before their own partner. A prophet hath no honor in his own country. And I want to spin that into talking about transformations in general, uh, specifically from Richard Bach's quote of the day, argue for your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. The number one thing that prevents 
positive transformation is the self arguing for the limitation of the self. You, and this is why I've noticed a tone. I said I would invoke a little bit of saucy sauceness from Nicole Sauce in this segment today. I've noticed a little bit of a tone shift in Nicole. And it's because Nicole has been pushing the side hustle business thing, improve your life thing, homestead thing so hard now, and she's hitting her stride, and she's starting to actually build momentum. And I know that because she's starting to get attacked by some people, and when you build momentum, you get attacked. We had that conversation recently. But that means you start attracting a lot of people that say, help me, help me, help me. And then you say, well, here's the things that you can do. And then they say, these are the reasons I can't do them. And eventually you go, wait a minute. And you start sniffing it out. When somebody sends you a question, and that's why you've heard her twice twice in the last three weeks say, it sounds to me like you really don't want to do this. You're asking us to help you, but it sounds to me like you don't want to do this. Because you do. You develop almost like a sixth sense of this is a person claiming they want to do a thing that they don't actually want to do. And so I can't help you because you're not willing to argue against your limitations instead of for them. And transformation is hard. Transformation is hard. Another quote from Bach's book is what, 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 the, what the student calls the end, the master calls a butterfly. Right? Or what the caterpillar calls the end, the master calls a butterfly. The caterpillar goes in its cocoon and it's not a comfortable conversion. Remember, it was a, a Jewish rabbi I listened to one time that talked about lobsters, and if, if humans, if lobsters were like humans, they would never grow. Because the lobster, as it grows inside its shell, it actually outgrows its shell. And it's very uncomfortable. And then it has to go somewhere and hide. And has to break through its shell. And when it does, it has no shell. And it, the other lobsters would literally eat it. Or any of its predators that would eat it when it has a shell will definitely eat it while it's a soft shell. And it has to hide. And it has to wait for the new shell to harden. Then it can come out and be a lobster, a larger lobster. It has to go through this many times in its life. And humans, if we started to feel uncomfortable that way, we would go to a doctor and the doctor would give us a pill and we would take the pill. And then we would be comfortable because it would stop us from growing. And then we would be comfortable, but we wouldn't grow. We wouldn't change. We wouldn't cast off our limitations and become larger and wiser over time. And the way that ties back into what I asked, there's a lot of people that fear transformation And they fear going through transformation. Maybe they see a partner going through a transformation and they say, well, if it works, and if I really should do it too, I feel like I might have to. And I don't want that to happen. And again, much of this can be subconscious. I think a lot of people that reach out to myself, Nicole, other people in our community and say, help me with this thing, and then argue for their limitations, they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize what they're doing. They really believe that they really want the thing that they say that they want, but yet they are putting obstacles in front of it all along the way instead of saying, and it comes down to the question. And you're asking the right question to the wrong person. Jack, how can I build this business when I have all these problems? You should be saying, self, what is my path through these problems? Because I can't ever actually know what your problems are. And that's why I might sound like a dick, because he just said it was really easy. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. <laughs> simple and easy ain't the same shit. I'm sorry, they're not. Simple means it's a thing with an obvious path that can be done. Easy means you don't have to do a lot and it'll just happen. If it was easy, everybody would do it. 
But you see so many people transform their lives. They go from fat to fit. Not just skinny, fat to fit. You know why? It's absolutely simple. No, it ain't easy. No, it ain't easy when you know that looks really good. But it's simple. Don't eat it anyway. It isn't easy when it's like, man, I just, I'm tired and I don't want to do any more work today. But you know that the answer is, I need to get these things off the deck so that I can hit the ground running tomorrow and we can meet our goals and our obligations and I can make this thing successful, this business successful. Right? It's very simple. This needs doing. I'm going to do it. It's not easy. It's much easier to argue for limitations. By arguing for limitations, you insulate yourself from responsibility to yourself and to others. Because your responsibility in life is to be the best you you can be. Once you go into a marriage, your responsibility in life is even more to be the best you you can be. Because that's what the other person really wants from you, even if they're not aware of it at the moment because they're having their own struggle. And the thing about radical transformation to the positive is that when you are around a person doing it, eventually you want in on the game. So if you are ever in a situation where you are taking a radical transformation to the positive and people around you seem to be upset by it or seem to be sabotaging it or seem to be concerned about it or seem to be preventing it or seem to be pulling back, just continue. Continue your journey and transform to the most positive person you can be and spread that that positive nature to them. Let them experience the benefits of you being a better you. Do not argue for your limitations. Because you don't really have any. You don't, every limitation we have, we have accepted for one reason or another. Well, Jack, if I was free to do anything I want, I'd run around naked in the street. No, lock me if I do that. Okay, well, you've chosen to not run around naked in the street because it's more important to you to not go to jail. You've accepted that limitation for yourself. Sometimes authorities are actually right, and maybe that wouldn't be a good idea after all. Sometimes they're wrong. We either work around it, we work through it, or we accept it. Every limitation. Well, Jack, I can't fly. You could get on an airplane. I mean levitate like a mystic. Maybe you could. I don't know. I don't know if sitting around arguing against it really will make sure that it never happens. I'm not saying it will if you don't. I'm just saying like that's a way you're, you're, you're trying to like play trickery. But what about pray tell if? No. In the world, in the things people claim to want to be able to do, every limitation is a limitation they've accepted and then argued for to give that, that, that person, that self, the comfort of not having to grow, to stay in the shell, and to not become vulnerable. You will become vulnerable when you transform. Even the most positive transformation, you like losing weight and getting fit, you will become vulnerable. You'll become the crab that's about to get out of the, 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 the bucket and the other crabs want to pull you back in. They don't even know why. They're not doing it to be mean. They don't know why. We fear transformation in ourselves. And we fear transformation in those around us. And the closer the person is, the closer it is to the self. The closer it is to the self, the more we feel, fear the trans- transformation. But once you've made the determination for yourself to transform, Your life, 
your health, whatever. Never, ever step away from it. You might change course into the how. But it's such a rare moment that a human being reaches this state. I will do this thing. Not because it's expected of me. Not because somebody told me to. Not because society says so. Because I, myself, within myself, have determined this course is right for me. It's so rare. It's so beautiful. Never let it be taken from you, ever. Argue for your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. If that is true, it can only be true that if you push away your limitations, if you cast off your limitations, you can achieve beyond them. They will no longer be your limitations. They'll be somebody else's. Hope you guys have a great weekend. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. 